Welcome to episode 26 of The Souvenir Shop. Which means astonishingly to me anyway, that this podcast is now six months old. Further, surprisingly large number of you who have listened, all I can say is thank you. And I hope you've enjoyed the episodes you've heard so far. I'll carry on posting new episodes on Sundays, as long as you carry on listening, although there might be the occasional break. From time to time, I'm also going to be putting out compilation episodes for people new to the podcast. All I ask in return is that you get my algorithm moving on up by liking, rating and perhaps even writing a nice review wherever you get your podcasts. And then tell your friends, family or anyone else you happen to bump into about this amazing little podcast with no adverts. And now, on with this week's episode. You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 26. Ramadan and Valentine. An autographed cricket bat sits somewhere in my brother's attic. I never quite got the point of either autograph hunting or, for that matter, cricket. Take autographs. During its Ned Sheeran era, appearing on Radio 4's Loose Ends was a great way to spend a Saturday. The BBC sent a big car for you in the morning and gave you coffee and pastries when you arrived. Once the broadcast was over, Ned would host a lavish and heavily alcoholic brunch upstairs in the pub opposite Broadcasting House, which lasted well into the afternoon. Whatever the arguments for or against retaining the BBC, I struggle to think of a better use for the licence fee. On the journey from the studio to the pub, autograph hunters, waving their books in our faces, surrounded us. These were not the small books you see in stationery shops, You know, the ones with floral patterns and autographs in gold leaf on the cover. They were giant ledgers with post-it notes sticking out strategically from the side. To an outsider, it must have looked as if we were being set upon by a vicious gang of double-entry bookkeepers. Who are you? demanded one of them after I signed the book he thrust under my nose. Who indeed? I shrugged before walking on. I had an autograph book as a kid. I've no idea who gave it to me, but my uncle Laurie worked as a lighting director at London Weekend and agreed to fill it with famous names. It came back to me via my brother John, who made one creative addition to the friendly personalised messages from Shaw Taylor, Peter Gordino and the rest. On the last page, John had added... Love and Kisses from John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Ringo Starr. At eight years old, and for years afterwards, I thought they were genuine. As for cricket, I can't stand the interminable pace, the long gaps where nothing happens, and the ritualistic blather that still encrusts the game. Go back a couple of hundred years, and cricket was a roughhouse game played by farmhands, where fights, cheating and illicit gambling were the norm. Its later reputation for genteel restraint is as phony as the English sense of fair play. So, none of this explains why I share possession of a 1955 professional cricket bat 
crammed with autographs from most of the great players of that era, ordered by the teams, both county and country, that they represented. Both my paternal grandparents were big fans of the game. One afternoon in the 1980s, I paid a visit to my grandma to find her glued to the television watching the fifth test match in that year's Ashes series. I knew better than to disturb her, so I went into the kitchen to make us both a cup of tea. We sat together on the sofa in silence, save for the occasional slurping of the tea, until Grandma remarked, Cohen's having a good innings. I should explain that she was referring to the Afro-Caribbean star of the England side, Norman Cowens. It was one of the many traits common to Jews of my grandma's generation, to tenuously claim any star of stage, screen or sporting arena as one of our own. Thirty years earlier, my grandpa won the autographed bat at some or other posh charity tombola, and a decade later, spotting that his three grandsons still showed no real interest in the game, gave it to us in the hope that it would initiate a love of the thwack of leather against Willow. Looking at the names on both sides of the bat, even someone with no interest in the game like me might recognise a few of them. There's Alec Bedser, scourge of Australian batsmen. Len Hutton, the great Yorkshire and England opener. And Fred Truman, who crowned a career as England's finest bowler by presenting Indoor League on Yorkshire television in a beige safari suit. But my two favourite names appear together under the West Indies team. The spin bowlers, Sonny Ramadin and Alf Valentine. In the 1950s Test Series, England lost to the West Indies for the first time ever on their home turf at Lords. Did I say lost? What I really meant to say was thrashed, trounced or left with ice cubes down the back of their shirts. The Young Windies' side's performance dragged the game into the modern era and they would soon dominate cricket for the next couple of decades. But that's enough about the actual game, because as with a lot of sport, the really interesting stuff happened beyond the boundary. Up until that second test at Lords, Britons were used to the restrained behaviour of the crowd. Mirroring the torpor of the game, it was common for the crowd to celebrate any action, be it a scratched single before bad light stops play, or Jack Hobbs scoring a century by the same gentle ripple of applause. Fans liked it that way, so much more civilised than that dreadful kicky ball game. This time, the visitors' support included new British citizens from the West Indies, and Lords shook with the joyful racket of cheers and shouts and steel bands as the visitors surgically took apart their colonial overlords. Before the 1950 series, cricket was still an old Commonwealth game dominated by England, Australia and South Africa. For the benefit of all of us, even curmudgeonly non-fans like me, the West Indies and their followers made the sport truly international. Of course, the Windies team already had a long and noble history. They became the fourth nation to participate in international tests 
as long ago as 1928. But until 1960, the old bigots running cricket still ruled that their side could only play test matches if their captain was white. Many of those in the crowd arrived in Britain a couple of years before on the Empire Windrush, among them a singer and songwriter named Aldwyn Roberts, who performed under his stage name of Lord Kitchener. He immediately dashed off a song called Victory Test Match, better known as Cricket Lovely Cricket. Sung by fellow artist Lord Beginner, the record was a huge summer hit bought by thousands, including my father. He played it occasionally, but mostly he sang it to me at bedtime. So when reading the two autographs on the bat, the chorus of Victory Test Match comes back to me. With those little pals of mine, Sonny Ramadin died in February 2022, aged 92, the last survivor of that remarkable test series. In 1950, he was a 21-year-old rookie who overcame two sets of colour prejudice by becoming the first Caribbean player of Indian origin in the squad. On the day he faced the might of England, his professional experience, like that of his even younger bowling partner Alf Valentine, amounted to precisely two first-class games. The romance of all this almost makes me want to love cricket. Just so long as I don't have to watch a game. That was Ramadin and Valentine, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then why not hit like and subscribe and write a review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time.